Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. So the epistle lesson that we had today is a dense one. And it marks an important transition in Paul's rhetorical argument that he is working throughout the book of Romans. In chapters 1 through 4, Paul is laying out, he's developing this core and central doctrine, which is justification by faith through Christ's atoning death. And as he is developing this doctrine, we move into the beginning of chapter 5, where Paul reiterates that doctrine, but then there's a shift in his rhetoric, in which now he shifts to fleshing out the numerous ramifications of justification by faith. One New Testament scholar gives, I think, a really powerful analogy of, of, of how this is happening in the book of Romans. He says that, that this idea of justification by faith that is developed in 1 through 4 and stated at the beginning of 5 is like a, um, like a rosebud. And you look at it and it's this kind of singular, tight, tightly wound thing. But then from 5 through, through 8, it's as if the rosebud is now opening up. And you realize that in that, that little rosebud was layer upon layer upon layer of, of rose petals. And so what we have here in chapter 5 is Paul beginning to unpack those layers, those ramifications of this radical idea, this radical reality, actually, of justification by faith. Now, there's too much here for me to do justice to all of it. I just pray that I could do justice to any of it. But for today, I just want to focus on three of these ramifications. In many ways, they are three assurances that we have. And I want to conclude with one of the key reasons for our assurance. The first assurance that I want to look at is the assurance of our relation to God. Verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can already see in this verse this mark of transition. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. But if you notice here, Paul is not using justification and peace with God as synonymous. They're two different realities. One leads to the other. They're united, but they're different. I think it's important for us to rest here for a second because there's a trend in the church, and there has been, on one side to, to downplay this doctrine of justification by faith. And in some segments, to even deny the doctrine of justification by faith. But there's a trend in in the other direction that you find within the church in which we want to make justification by faith the sum whole of our salvation. 
That that is, that is not just a core, but it's the whole reality of it. But we find in, in Paul's argument, and we see this throughout Scripture, that justification by faith is foundational. But it's a foundation upon which a grand house of salvation rises up from. See, justification deals with this idea of declaration. This declaration that, that we are no longer guilty. That we are forgiven. That our debts are removed. It carries a connotation of, of legal standing. But see, the idea of peace is tied to the central Jewish concept of shalom. Which is the idea of wholeness or health, completeness. The removal of animosity or division. You see in the Old Testament that there was war and then there was shalom. There's disease and famine and then there's shalom. There is the brokenness and divisions that are caused by our fallenness within our world. And then there is the shalom of God that, that hems it all back together. So Paul's saying that because of our justification by faith, where there was animosity and division in our relation to God, there is now shalom. There is peace. If you think of it as an example, I mean, imagine, if you could, that I'm super, super insecure, and in the midst of my insecurities and longing for a sense of power and the security of wealth, I attack another man that I might take what is rightfully his. Now, if I do that, that man has, has every right to press charges that I might go to prison. In some context, he may have the right to have vengeance for what I have done and to hold me indebted to what I had destroyed or what has been lost because of what I had done to that man. And it would be an amazing thing. It'd be a phenomenal thing. That man would say, no, you're forgiven. I'm not going to press charges. I'm not going to seek vengeance on you. I'm going to remove the debts that you owe. That in and of itself would be a glorious thing. But it would be an even different thing. It would be a different thing if that man then said, and I'm going to establish shalom with you. That I am going to draw you in to a relationship of peace where there is no longer animosity, there is no longer division, where we are knit together and him together and united. See, Paul is saying, because of our justification by faith, we now, as that bud is opening up, we see that we have relationship of peace or shalom with the one who has forgiven us our debts. But this idea of relationship goes on further. If you read in verse 2, it says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we hope and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
I mean, we read this, standing in grace and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God is something that, that may stir our hearts, but we can also read past, I think, too quickly. And partially because we treat the idea of glory a little bit too flippantly. I mean, it's just like glory, glory, hallelujah. You know, it's like standing in the Lord's glory, but we miss the fullness of the reality of what it would mean to be able to stand in the full glory of God. The idea of glory in the scriptures is tied to this to 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 a, a kind of basic idea of weightiness. It encompasses the fullness of God's nature, the fullness of his character, his power, his beauty, his holiness. That all of that is tied into the immensity of God, which is his glory. And if you would look at it in the Old Testament, you would, one would not think of standing and rejoicing in God's full glory because you would instead be afraid that you would be crushed under its weight. Reminded of the call of Isaiah to his prophetic ministry in which he had a vision where he was brought up to the throne of God, brought into the midst of the full glory of God. And it says that he fell down. And it's translated that he said, Woe to me! And it will be translated, I am lost, or I am undone. The Hebrew word that is translated lost or undone actually connotes something a little heavier. It actually means something more like, I am destroyed. I am being tore apart. Isaiah, in the midst of the glory of God, apart from the image of that sanctifying hot coal, was being ripped asunder under the weight of God's glory. Makes me think of uh, of a profound analogy that we have from nature. I mean, what what we now think or know from physics, and I understand that you know, every so often another genius writes a paper and completely rewrites the fabric of the universe. But I ain't a physicist, and so I'm lucky just to get the Einstein junk a little bit. But so from what we understand is that the greater mass something has, the greater its gravitational pull. The more, more immense, the more massive something is. The weightiness of the thing, the glory of the thing, determines the gravity of the thing. And for all y'all science people, I, I know that, that weight and mass are not actually the same thing, but come on, just like, please roll with me. Like, but, but if you think about that, think about the, the idea that our entire universe is, or, 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 or galaxy, I mean, is surrounding a massive black hole. See, see the immensity, the massiveness, the, the glory of that black hole has, has creates such a gravitational pull and draw that the entire galaxy surrounds that black hole. And the weight, if you will, of that black hole holds our galaxy together. But also most physicists believe that if you or I or anybody else would approach a black hole, 
as we would approach that black hole, we would be torn apart. We'd be torn apart at our most, most basic and atomic level. Absolutely destroyed under the immensity, the massiveness, the weightiness, the glory of that black hole. The thing is, the glory of God is so massive that, e- that even the entire universe revolves around him with all of its black holes, is held together by him and centered upon him. See, the reality that of the coming of God's full glory should utterly destroy us. By, but Paul says, by grace we can stand and even rejoice in God's full glory. See, our position of peace or shalom with God and our ability to stand and rejoice in the hope of his coming glory is tied up in the assurance that through Christ we are now reconciled to God. Jump ahead to the end in verse 11. Paul writes, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In this passage, Paul is building. He's building with this consecutive more than that. Going from justification to this reality of reconciliation. That not only have we been justified, but that justification then produces reconciliation. It's not that we have been, (coughs) that we just escape hell and the judgment of God but then God somehow remains distant or unapproachable. But because we have been justified by faith, we are restored to communion with God. A relationship in which all barriers, animosity, brokenness, and hindrances are removed. And one in which we can rejoice with sure hope that in the full presence of God's great glory, we will not be crushed, but instead will stand in the splendor of his absolute presence. So we have the assurance of our relation to God. Secondly, we have assurance of hope in the midst of suffering and hardship. Verses 3 through 4, he says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. It's one of these more than that's. The saying is more than rejoicing in the hope that what will, what will one day be, we can rejoice now in the midst of our suffering and hardships. And it's important to note that the way hope is used here and is used throughout the scriptures is not the way that we often use the word hope. We often use hope as wishful thinking. Like, I hope I get a raise. I hope I win the lottery. That's not what hope means. Hope is an expectant certainty of a good that we are awaiting or longing for. But as you read this passage, or at least as I read this passage, that's encouraging. But then the skeptic in me is like, are you sure, Paul? I mean... Suffering producing hope? 
I mean, suffering, I can see suffering producing endurance. I mean, we, we, we all kind of understand this idea of being able to push through hardships and suffering. And that's going to produce fortitude. But not always. Sometimes suffering crushes us. Leaving us incapable to push through. Heck, it leaves us unable to get out of bed the next morning. And maybe you can understand suffering eventually leading to character. I mean, we like to talk about that. I mean, he's a great man. He is the man that he is today because of all, what, all that he went through as his, in his childhood. As old-timers used to say or use this whenever they try to get a kid to do something painful or miserable. I think about like it would be something my pap would say whenever I'd be outside, 90-degree weather, digging a ditch. My grandma would be like, please let that boy come in and cool off. And my pap would be like, ah, he's all right. little heat stroke. Never hurt nobody. Builds character. You know what I mean? Like, so you can see how suffering maybe builds character. And I would say that suffering almost always builds character. It's just not always a good one. I mean, a lot of times suffering produces and builds a bitter, jaded old man. Cynicism and hatred. Deep-rooted anger. Suffering then eventually leading to hope. I mean, sometimes. Sadly, far too often, I've seen suffering crush hope. Leaving people in absolute and utter despair. But see, the thing is, is... What Paul is laying out here is not a statement that this is some natural progression. That somehow in and of itself, that suffering will always produce endurance, which will always lead to good character, which will eventually fortify hope. And he's not saying, as some preachers have said, and some commentators I have read has said, That, well, what he is saying about suffering depends on how we respond to the suffering. I've read this passage a bunch of times. Ain't nothing about what we do in this passage. But see, I think the key is when we go on in verse 5. It says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, in the hands of God, the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us by grace, these things are flipped. The downward spiral suffering often produces is reversed. Because we have been justified by grace and given the Holy Spirit, we can rejoice in suffering knowing that He is producing in us a Christ-like character and bolstering our true hope, a hope that will never put us to shame. Even when we cannot see it at the moment, or even struggle to understand how he might bring it about. See, being justified by grace, having the love of God poured out in our heart, God works all things for the good. As Paul later says in chapter 8, 
And in that good, even suffering and hardships, he works for the good that we might receive the character of Christ, bolstering our hope because even suffering is flipped by God to fulfill his redemptive promises, affirming the very promise we had hoped for. And now, that, that sounds nice, but I know that if you are in the midst of suffering, especially if you're in the midst of a suffering that doesn't look like it has an end, it's really hard to lay hold of this. But thanks be to God, it's not dependent on our ability to grasp it. It's dependent upon God's grasp of us. It reminds me, as I was reading this, thinking about period of time I had whenever I was ministering in inner city Pittsburgh. It was a long season. It was a season that didn't look like it was going to have an end. And in, in that season, it seemed like there was one thing after another after another. I had individuals I had poured into that had turned on me. I had a, a sketch landlord that had, had basically robbed us of thousands and thousands of dollars that I had raised. We were had faced a, a foreclosure in a home that we couldn't sell down in northern Virginia. And then in the midst of all of that, I had the incessant accusations that I was somehow a failure, that God had abandoned me, that he wasn't there, racked with doubts. And in the midst of all of that, at times, it wasn't producing what I thought was character, it was producing anger at God. And at times, anger at a God that I wasn't quite sure if he was even there and if he was, if he cared. But coming out of that and looking back, I realize that he was in the midst of that, fulfilling his promises. The problem is, is some of the things I had hoped he had promised, he never promised. He didn't promise that what I had set out to do, I would accomplish. He didn't promise that, that things would work out, that I would be successful as I defined that reality in my own mind, that I would be loved, that I would be affirmed, or that I would be accepted by anyone or anything. But he did promise that he would produce a Christ-like character in me. And I'm not there yet, but I know that through that suffering, he was shaping me into the man he redeemed me to be. But even more than that, I look back and I realize that through that suffering, most of my hopes were crushed. My hope that somehow I would prove that I was not that punk kid screw up that I was constantly trying to show I was no longer. To prove that I was, was a respectable man. That, that, to prove that I, that, that, that I would somehow, I had hoped that I would, would be a, a notable preacher. Somebody who, who people respected and looked up to. A valued minister. And my hopes were all being crushed. But the reality is, is those hopes were false hopes. Those were not hopes that would never put me to shame. But as I walked through that and my hopes were crushed, there was one hope that it could never leave me. It was a hope that would never put me to shame. It was a hope that someday I would stand before my Lord in the fullness of his glory and he'd look me in the eyes and say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And because all those other hopes were crushed and that was the only hope I had to lay hold of, my hope and the hope that would never put me to shame was built, was bolstered, and was strengthened.
See, suffering and hardship may crush many hopes and dreams, but God's promise to liberate us from our self-destructive narcissism, restoring to us the glory we have lost by conforming us to Christ's glorious likeness, will be shown to be true. And even if all other hopes may seem to be lost, our one true hope will not be destroyed, but will be bolstered, so it will be the one that remains. Not because we muster up enough faith, or because of fortitude of will or certitude of mind, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit carrying us through, lavishly pouring God's love into our hearts. So we have the assurance of our relation to God. An assurance of hope in the midst, hope and endurance in the midst of suffering and hardship. And finally, we have the assurance of God's favor and completion of our salvation. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, so shall we be saved by his life. I think it's interesting, in some ways, Paul builds to come to the assurance that is in many ways foundational to all the previous assurances, which is that God's wrath is not now nor ever will be directed toward those justified in Christ. But instead, we can be certain of God's love and that he will carry our salvation to completion. But see, in this is an idea that we don't often like to focus on, but it's absolutely essential. I mean, we like the idea of because of God's love for us, Christ died, which is true. But when we, when we con- convey it like that, we can easily infer that somehow his love for us is because of something good or lovable about us. I think that's why we're drawn to stories that we often point to as pictures of the gospel. Stories about the honorable warrior who sacrifices himself for his people. The mother who gives herself over so that her children might have life. We like the stories where where the hero self-sacrifices for the ones he loves. And while these types of stories have faint glimmers of the gospel. Paul points out that as rare and noble as these things might be, it's not nearly as radical as the gospel. Actually, the reality of the gospel is so outlandish and so unfathomable that one could hardly think to write a novel or a film that truly reflects it. I mean, can you imagine a story in which an honorable ruler gives his life so that a corrupt one who has been trying to usurp his his throne might live? I mean, a, a novel where the hero of the story at the very end of the story ends up sacrificing himself so that the villain doesn't have to die. But see, this is what Paul is pointing us to. 
This radical reality reminding us of the hard reality, a reality that might rob us of our fragile ego and self-reliance, but grants us an absolute assurance. The reality that our justification was purchased for us by the blood of Christ while we were weak. And that doesn't mean I'm weak because I didn't eat my breakfast. Like the word weak here means absolutely incapable, crippled. And while we are enemies of God, saying to us, if, we, if he would die for us while we were sinful rebels who sought to rob God of his glory, we can be absolutely certain that in his life, Christ's glorious and victorious resurrected life in which he is interceding for us on the right, at the right hand of the Father, God's wrath, his anger or displeasure will not be directed towards us, but instead only love. A love that will not abandon us because we have fallen short because we have failed, because we have stumbled, because of weakness of faith or momentary doubt, because it was a love directed towards us even when we were in, a, in overt opposition to God. In some ways, I think it's one of the, those Pauline sarcastic plays. It's kind of like he's saying that if God would send his son to die for you while you were running around replacing God with idols, seeking to dethrone God that you might take his place, you really think, that now that you are justified, declared children of God, heirs with Christ, even called friends, that somehow God's wrath is still directed towards you? That somehow down the road, all of a sudden, he will not complete the salvation purchased by Christ's blood that was purchased while you were still enemies of God. This is an immeasurable assurance. So often in times of weakness or wavering, when faced with our brokenness and failures in our self-loathing and insecurities, the lie creeps in. That God is surely angry with us. That we certainly can't approach him. Enter into his glory. Be in a state of shalom with God. But the thing is, is every good lie has a good dose of twisted truth in it. Because the reality is that actually we were far more broken, weak, deplorable, and unworthy when Christ chose to die for us. And there was nothing we could do to change that. And now that we belong to him, our resurrected living Lord surely ain't going to abandon us now. And all of these assurances that are a result of our justification are absolutely certain because our justification and none of them and none of the consequences depend on us. It's a repeated theme that goes on throughout this entire passage. It says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have access to faith, stand in grace, rejoice in hope of God's glory. We rejoice in suffering and have a hope that does not put us to shame through the Holy Spirit. And as verse 11 states, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The fact that our justification comes by faith and nothing of our own works and the reality that all of the ramifications of that justification, our peace with God, reconciliation, acceptance, favor, hope, endurance, and the completion of our salvation, 
all are given to us through God, independent of our abilities or deserving, is a huge hit to our fragile egos and false sense of self-sufficiency. It robs us of any sense of superiority and any right to boast. But in return, we receive certain assurance that all those things we grasp for through false arrogance and the facade of competence are now ours through him alone. And this is huge. Because if in any way our justification and all of its ramifications relied on us, then our hope, our peace, acceptance, endurance, and salvation would be as fickle and fragile as we are. But thanks be to God. They are ours by grace through faith, dependent solely upon him, and ours through him alone. Therefore, our assurance is rooted in the unchangeable, eternal God, the most glorious one who the whole universe revolves around and through whom it is held together. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Realize they took your-